Welcome back to Series 3 of the Writing Around the Kids podcast. We're really excited to bring to you some great chats with our fabulous guests every week. We do hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome to Writing Around the Kids. I'm Anna. And I'm Sam. And today we've got the fabulous Philippa East with us. Hi, Philippa. Hello, lovely to be with you. So Philippa grew up in Scotland and originally studied psychology and philosophy at the University of Oxford. After graduating, she moved to London to train as a clinical psychologist and worked in the NHS mental health services for over 10 years. Philippa now lives in the Lincolnshire countryside with her spouse and cat. And alongside her writing, she continues to work as a psychologist and therapist. Her debut novel, Little White Lies, was long-listed for The Guardian's Not the Booker Prize and shortlisted for the CWA John Creasy New Blood Dagger. She has since published two further psychological suspension novels, Safe and Sound and I'll Never Tell, and is currently working on her fourth. And today, Philippa is going to be reading from I'll Never Tell. I love that book. Um, So the blurb, to the outside world, the good lights are perfect. Julia is a lawyer, Paul, a stay-at-home dad who has dedicated his life to helping their daughter, Chrissy achieve her dreams as a talented violinist. But on the night of a prestigious music competition, which has the power to change everything for Chrissy and her family, Chrissy goes missing. She puts on the performance of a lifetime, then completely disappears. Suddenly, every single crack, every single secret that the family is hiding risks being exposed because the good lights aren't perfect, not even close. So delighted that Philippa's going to read an extract from I'll Never Tell. So over to you, Philippa. Lovely, thank you. Um, So this is from the opening chapter of I'll Never Tell, and it's um, written in the point of view of uh, Julia Goodlight, who is the mother of Chrissy, the teenage violinist, who has just disappeared um, after her jaw-dropping performance at um, the Barbican in London. The seatbelt strains like a garrote across my neck as I lean forward, craning to see beyond the cat's eyes and white lines zipping past. Paul, my husband, is in the driver's seat. He is so reliable, so safe. How much I've depended on him over the years, rightly or wrongly. Ten years together, and who would ever have believed where we're at now? She played so well, I say, seeking reassurance, fighting to keep the dumb fear from my voice. Didn't she? Paul's hands tighten on the steering wheel, as though they weren't already gripping tightly enough. She did, Julia. She was truly brilliant. The seatbelt slides up, pressing where the skin of my jaw is still sensitive, only recently returned to its natural hue. So why this? I want to demand of him, as though he has any better answers than I do as though he has secrets to reveal of his own. Why did Chrissy bolt from the concert venue when that fire alarm went off? Why do I suspect that she set it off herself? It makes no sense that she would run off before the winners were announced, when she had every chance of being one of them. For hours, we had no idea where she was, until eventually Paul turned on the tracker app, the one he had installed on Chrissy's phone after that time at the Botanical Gardens, the one I didn't know about until tonight. And, lo and behold, turns out of all places, she had gone back home. It seems she just got herself on a train from London Paddington to Oxford and left. Almost there, Paul says, and the knowledge makes me feel weak with relief. 
We just have to navigate Oxford's one-way system and we'll arrive at our grand, sturdy house on Woodstock Road. For the dozenth time, I check the tracker, tracker app on Paul's phone, seeking to reassure myself yet again. The little pulsing dot hasn't moved on the map. It's still hovering exactly over our house. I wish I could zoom so close into our street, our home, that I could tell exactly which room Chrissy's in. Is it her bedroom or her practice room? Our big, bright kitchen or our snug? I'd like to be able to zoom in on every square foot of whichever space and sense exactly what she's doing right now. Lying in bed or fixing herself a snack or throwing herself into yet more violin practice. Although she couldn't do that because her violin is here on the back seat of the car with us. In a moment, though, we'll know for sure. Paul swings the car into our wide gravel drive. I can hear our dog Jackson barking fit to bust before either of us even get out. Yay. <sighs> yeah, so like Anna, I uh, really love this book as well and it's really uh, lovely to hear it in your voice. So I was um, interested to ask you, obviously uh, in this book you use, uh, you've got different um, narrators, so you've got different uh, people, different uh, the three members of the family kind of doing their different parts of the story and so when you're working like that with multiple perspectives how do you choose which person tells which bit of the story oh yeah really really good question um probably a really annoying answer is I kind of do it instinctively which is not helpful at all. <laughs> but I think um I, I mean this book has quite an, an odd structure in terms of its narrative setup, in the the present tense sections, which are basically the events after Chrissy disappears on the night of the concert and trying to track down where she is, they're told from the point of view of Julia, her mother, mm. like you just heard. Yeah. Um, and then the the book then flips into the past eight weeks before, and we we hear the events leading up to Chrissy's disappearance from the point of view of her father or stepfather Paul and um yeah I I suppose with this one um uh it's a difficult one to answer because the story actually changed an awful lot when I was writing it so funnily enough my original decision of why I was telling part of it you know telling the past sections in Paul's point of view kind of were partly to do with the original story plan which subsequently changed but I think I think the, the, the bottom line is um, I, I always like telling my psychological thrillers in multiple points of view because mm -hmm. often they're stories about family mm -hmm. and you can't really get a handle on what's going on in a family unless you hear from more than one person in that family I think it also plays really well into this idea of, an, of the convention of an unreliable narrator in yeah. psychological thrillers so when you have more than one character telling their version of the story the reader's always asked to decide well whose whose version is more trustworthy whose is more accurate um and i think um yeah i think that obviously the scenes where julia and paul are both in the scene so when you know when do you tell it from julia's point yeah. of view when do you tell it from paul's um and i think what was quite fun in this book is that actually sometimes you get the same scene but you know, one, first you might have it in Paul's point of view and then you might have mm -hmm. it in Julia's point of view and actually you get to play around with showing that maybe what you thought was going on in the first one. But I think 
um, isn't isn't actually what's going on. But I think in general, it's good to think about. I remember reading a piece of advice which said, kind of, well, which character has most at stake yeah. in this particular scene? You know, is this scene making more difference to you know? Because like we always know that every scene has to kind of move the plot along, yeah. right? So does it move the plot along more in this character's viewpoint? Or, you know, does it matter more for this character? Or does it matter more for that character? But I think that's not a hard and fast rule either. <laughs> Just to be really extra helpful. Because sometimes seeing something happen to a character, even if they're the kind of protagonist in that moment, through another character's eyes is also really interesting and it adds different layers. So, yeah, I think there's no, I think probably what I'd say is there's no hard and fast rule and yeah. don't be scared to try one thing, but then change it yeah. and, and see what works best for that particular story and those particular moments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I'm really interested when you're, when you're talking about like with the unreliable uh, narrator, for example, um, that because the, the three characters within this novel all seem to carry equal weight in terms of um, their importance with the retelling of the story. And so when you started this, did you, do you have a protagonist in mind or do you kind of get to know your characters and then their stories um, uh, undermine each other as they're being told? Or how does, how does that work when, I know you said that the story changed quite a bit from what you'd initially thought it was going to be, but how mm. much of that, that planning and that overlaying takes place in the familiarising yourself and getting to know your characters before you kind of put pen to paper or, you know, word to screen as it were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think for me, it's sort of a half and half in the sense that quite often characters come to me quite clearly. Um, I normally have quite a strong sense of them from the get go with with any particular story. Yeah. Um, so their kind of general personality is usually fairly fairly obvious to me. I've never found myself having to kind of create that from from scratch. Um, but saying that, I think that in the course of writing the book, I discover their secrets, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I have to take time maybe through multiple drafts or sometimes stepping out and going back to my planning process, like you say, of figuring out, yeah, what, what's actually driving this character mm. or what exactly has happened to them or, you know, how... Uh, you know, what What exactly did they want or how exactly would they approach this part of the story? So, for example, um, I'd probably gone through two pretty major rewrites before I worked out what Julia's kind of ultimate kind of trauma was. Yeah. So for those of you who have read the book, there's a reveal, you know, fairly late on, which kind of... Uh, it's sort of the, the crux of the whole family, really. And it took me a really long time to figure out what that was for Julia. Yeah. Um, and it's always a funny one for me because on the one hand, it's like, well, I'm the author. I'm literally just making it up. I can make it whatever I want. But it doesn't never feels like that for, for me. It's always trying to discover what feels like the truth about this character. And there was a version of her backstory that I had as a, as a sort of, possibility for quite a while but it never felt right it never felt like it really explained who she was it didn't feel correct for the other ca characters in the family so I kept going back and I kept going back and then I had this other idea slash insight you know was it was it something I made up or was it something that I realized about my 
actual character. Mm. And it felt like, oh, no, that's what happened. That's the backstory that's happened in this family. And then, yeah, so... So it's yeah, like I, like I say, I think I, I have a, a strong sense of their characters, but I don't know everything about them, and, and that is a process of discovery, which is always really fun for me. Yes. Not least because I think it it echoes a lot of what I do in my day job. You know, yeah. I, I often get a pretty strong first impression of a client, but then of course, as I work with them, I'm figuring out all the pieces of their story and, and, and what it's about for them and how it all hangs together. With that in mind, I was going to ask, so do you draw a lot on your work as a psychologist in your writing? Um, and also, like, where do your characters come from? Um, yeah, I think, I think um, I, I'm obviously very mindful not to draw on really specific cases of or, course, or yeah. from my work. <laughs> uh, but, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think that I, I sort of, as, as a clinical psychologist and, and, you know, working as a therapist, I have the privilege of hearing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people's stories and very, very personal stories, not just kind of everyday stories. Yeah. And I think that that's allowed me to to vicariously know a lot about people's experiences beyond my own. So I've got quite a broad, a broad canvas to draw from. So mm-hmm. even if it's not something that, that I might have experienced personally, I might have met quite a few people who've been through that kind of experience and who've who've shared their stories with me um so I definitely I definitely feel that that gives me a lot of yeah a lot a lot of stuff to work from and yeah I mean in terms of where my characters come from I mean you know I think probably they're all bits of me you know Julia's definitely got bits of me in her and you know Chrissy as well you know and so so I think I'm always probably I feel much more that my characters reflect me than reflect people I know. I don't mm. generally find myself looking around at people I've encountered in my life and being like, oh, I want to base a character on them. Mm. Um, they sort of, yeah, they sort of come come into my mind from somewhere inside. So therefore, I think they're probably all versions of me or perhaps versions of, of people, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe to an extent, maybe kind of people who've been very... I've been very close with like mm. family members that, that do, of course, affect your own <laughs> sense of yourself and your own relationships and things, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, a very strong case to be made about writing authentic characters when you draw from personal experience or, or personal belief or, um, be, yes, to be able to, to write with the, with, the, with the strength and the conviction of the characters that you do. Um, I think it's interesting as well when you're talking about the two different, how they, they feed into each other, but, you know, you do wear two different hats professionally as a writer and as a clinical psychologist. And I wondered, in terms of your week as a writer, how do you navigate the two? What does your writing routine look like on a, if there is a, a kind of an average week, as it were? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm these days. I'm in the really fortunate position that I work very, very part time um, in my in my psychology job. So, I previously used to work full time in the NHS, and and it was very much a case of fitting my writing around that. I used to, you know, come home at the end of the day and write in the evenings. I would I would get up, you know, a a, a reasonable time in the in the weekends, and I would carve out time to write then. Um, now I just run my clinics um, one day a week on a Friday, which is 
which I was, we were saying just before we came on air, I'm actually doing this interview from my clinic room. <laughs> uh, no, no, no patients are here at the minute, obviously. Um, so I see, I see um, patients on a Friday. So I have a pretty full day on a Friday of, of seeing, seeing my, my case, my cases, my, my clients, my full caseload. Um, I do a little bit of um, sort of admin, answering messages and emails and things for the practice on a, on a Thursday as well. I can do that from home. Um, and the rest of the week, um, basically, I, I have for writing, which is which is fantastic. So, I I would I generally I gen, generally don't write on on a Friday because mm. you know I'm I don't really have have time. And it's it's good to sometimes just come out of it. But pretty much every other day of the week, I will do some writing. I I kind of have to consciously remember to take a day off because I mm. just it's such a natural thing for me. So, um, and I probably I probably would maybe spend between one and four hours actually writing or sort of, you know, editing or actively planning something like that. Because I think, um, I think from probably most, most writers or creatives out there, I think there is a limit to how, how much sustained creativity you can do in one chunk. Absolutely. So, so hours at the, the desk, so to speak, I, I wouldn't, I would be very, very rare for me to put in an eight hour day, but I probably do, you know, I probably do kind of up to half a day, most, most days of the week that I'm not um, at the practice, which is six out of seven. And then around that, I, you know, I, I am doing bits and pieces of kind of promo, you know, whether that's social media or doing things like this, which is always lovely. Um, and, and reading, which I get to kind of count as like <laughs> part of my job now yeah. as well. Like, oh, I, I have to get into bed at three o'clock in the afternoon and read a book. Oh, it's that sounds such gorgeous. A hard life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With your writing during the day, though, when you're saying you have between kind of like an hour and four hours, um, kind of tangibly writing, as it, so what would you look at and how, how would that measure itself in terms of you thinking that was a successful time because yeah there are points where we can just be um procrastinating or staring at the screen and nothing's really coming but do you hmm. think about it in terms of the amount of time that you that you are actively writing or is it a word count or uh, yeah how 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 would you say oh that was a that was a good writing day for yeah me? yeah yeah I think I, I normally have a sense of the the task or the piece of work that I want to get done that day. So if I'm, for example, writing a first draft, I usually aim to do a, a routine of about 2,000 words a day, which is probably on the higher higher side of average. Um, other writers might do um, quite a bit less than that. I'm quite a um, sort of a, a sort of bit of a blurgy first drafter, so I write very sort of loose and dirty. Mm. So I can I can often write about two thousand words within two hours. I just sit down and sort of vomit it out and it's not very <laughs> not very neat and tidy. Um so when I'm when I'm doing a first draft I probably aim for about two thousand words a day and mathematically that means that I can get a first draft done within about three months, which could I just like to get that sort of that done and that down. And I think yeah. if I write fewer words a day, I just start to feel it's just taking such a long time if I try and write more than that I quite quickly run out of kind of creative juices you know mm. if I'm trying to I, I do have some days when I might write more especially if I'm kind of on that sprint to the finish but yeah too much more than that then I can't really write the next next day so, so 2000 works quite well for me um, when I'm editing I will normally have you know a sense of maybe a number of 
scenes or chapters I want to get through on that particular day, and then it would be a good writing day if I get those if I get those done. And I do try to sort of stay at the desk until that's finished, which is why you know sometimes I might get through that more quickly than I anticipated, and I can go and have my nap earlier. And sometimes <laughs> it takes longer. Um, and some, but then on some days I you know I do have to sort of just say actually it's just not happening today, or I've mm. hit a really sticky pit sticky bit that I probably should just leave it and come back fresh tomorrow so I do try to be quite quite kind with myself mm-hmm. I thought it's always that balance isn't it of kind of discipline and kindness and having enough discipline that you you're making consistent progress and you're keeping the ball rolling and you're not you know you're not just letting it fizzle out but also I think working having a little bit of a sense of when we're at our best and when we're really flagging and trying mm. to play with that a little bit yeah Absolutely. Um, and so when you're getting into bed with a book at 3pm, what kind of things are you reading? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, I do complain about how hard authors work and then I say things like that until I can blow the whole thing out of the water. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so, so I mean, I love psychological thrillers, you know, uh, and I think, I think it's such, a, such an established genre now and it, people continue to innovate in that genre and so there's always always feels like there's something you know fresh to read and I and I um you know yeah I I read lots and lots of psychological thrillers Mm -hmm. I quite like a little bit of kind of um something a little bit more literary or a bit quirky um I quite like you know um uh you know well this sounds a bit literary but something a bit like Jonathan Franzen you know but maybe a bit lighter than that you Mm -hmm. know something about kind of american society and stuff like that um i've recently just read my first or started reading my first ruth rendell book having never read anything of hers before and a bit of a throwback but i was like oh my god she's like proper domestic noir mm. like this is fantastic the queen um, of crime fiction yes it's good it's good to yeah. go back to the the classics the the kind of retros isn't it yeah, and it's funny because I was reading. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm having a little bit of a retro spate at the moment. So I read um, an, an, Ag- an Agatha Christie, and I was like, mm, I totally respect her as a writer, but it's not that kind of more straight detective crime has never really been my cup of tea. Mm. And then, like I say, I read this. I read um, Ruth Rendell, and I was like, this is it. You know, character, <laughs> character, character, relationship. You know, all of that stuff. That's that's kind of there's the psychology bit of it, but that I love so yeah I'm in a bit of a retro phase at the minute I, think. I love a good reading <laughs> retro phase um I am um recently went back home to my mum's house who also lives in Lincolnshire so it's fantastic oh. to have another Lincolnshire lass on um yeah and uh I picked up all of my Judy Bloom books and brought them back oh, yeah. um, for my uh, for my daughter to read and um there was just something so utterly heartwarming to see yeah. those stories being read again by her for the yeah. you know, for the first time and in, and feeling excited by them so yes I'm a big fan of a good retro read um, yeah, and it's actually quite nice to kind of then think about because I'm, I'm always really I'm really interested in the like the market, what books are being published now, and it's really interesting sometimes to go back and look at these kind of earlier templates of like like I say, looking at Ruth Rendell and thinking, yeah, she was writing domestic noir, and then we had Gone Girl, and now domestic noir is everywhere. But actually, yeah. it's really interesting to look at what was she doing back then and makes me think about okay well again how can we keep innovating that genre now what what's been done what's not been done what could what's been done but could be revived yeah 
Yeah, I like Can it. I ask a question as well in terms of like, be, you know, you're now writing your fourth novel, and um, so obviously, and uh, the the weighting of your um, professional week is tilted towards writing. Um, but at what point? It, I mean, was there a moment where you decided you wanted to be a writer, or have you always known that this is something that you were going to pursue? Like, were you writing for a long time before you've got published? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I didn't always know I wanted to be a writer. Quite the opposite. I, it was, it, in terms of it being an explicit choice, it was not on my radar at all. You know, I think I didn't have any kind of role models for people pursuing creative professions. Um, people in my family were doing very, um, you know, kind of mainstream middle class jobs like teacher, lawyer, accountant, uh, nurse, the, those were the kind of career paths that I saw. Um, and not that my my sort of family was ever against creativity, but that was always kind of, okay, you do that as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we totally celebrate that and you put plenty of time into it, but no one has that as a job. Um, so so I, I went down the psychology path, but looking back now, it's so clear that books and stories and writing you know I don't know if it's um uh I can't remember the name of the person who did the artist way what's her name is it Julia something yeah I can't think of the name either but I know I'm, I'm yeah we're, we're familiar you know, with the, you know the yeah. book I mean yes and she I think it's her that talks about a shadow career you know this kind of this kind of career that's been running alongside your mm. your official one and looking back you know like for example I did my clinical psychology uh, doctorate dissertation on the use of creative writing in the treatment of eating disorders and it's like like stuff about writing and creativity has always been there but yeah it wasn't until I was um, I think yeah about 30 that I picked it picked creative writing up again as a hobby and um, just really fell in love with it all over again having done stuff at school and things like that and um, and then, yeah, I was I was writing for about ten years before I um, got my debut publication for Little White Lies. And during that time, I was mostly writing short stories, which was a really nice way to um, find my feet mm. in my writing and and you know sort of figure out what kind of stories I wanted to tell and my craft, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it was definitely not an overnight thing. Um, so yeah, it was probably about 10 years between picking it up as an adult. Um, and it was when I was starting to get short stories published that I thought actually maybe I'm good enough to, to do this seriously, uh, or at least to get a novel. If I can get short stories published, my level of writing is presumably good enough to be published, right? Yeah. Feasible conclusion. So, so then I, then I had this, I did have this idea for, it wasn't called Little White Lies at the time, obviously, but I had I had the idea for that book. Um, so so set about writing it with the view to then you know submitting and and um, yeah seeing if I could get an agent and and so on. Yeah. Do you still write it's short the, stories I, now? Um, no, really, just because I don't. I suppose I don't necessarily have the time, yeah. and I really like writing novels. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I probably could write a short story uh, again, but 
I kind of feel like, well, if I'm going to do that, I might as well just write a chapter. Keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but what I am actually having fun with at the moment is um, I'm actually writing, I've been writing a couple of books for my niece and nephew, just really for fun, but obviously it's a completely different genre. They're children's books. They're kind of fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> and actually that's quite a fun way of just having a... Uh, uh, a kind of unprofessional writing project on the go as well just to yeah just to do something a little bit different yeah to keep the keep the joy of it and it not just be like work I suppose yeah 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 and and sort of have the freedom to not worry about you know does this fit does this fit my brand yeah mm. you know <laughs> what will my editor think <laughs> um, and so we've 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 mentioned your fourth book um I think we said we, you're still working on it but it's, it's it's coming out in January is that right yeah, I was just thinking, I must have sent you that um, author bio a little while ago. And actually, yeah, things have moved on since then. So, yay, all my edits are done on that. Fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah. So so this one is called um, A Guilty Secret. And yes, it's coming out in January. It's just gone up on NetGalley. So if you're one of those people who who is great at, you know, doing early reads and reviews for books, then you can hop over to NetGalley and, and um, find it. Yeah, and I'm... Like, I'm just so excited about this book. I've really, really enjoyed writing it. It felt like it felt like one of those ones that came, I'm going to say easily, it still went through a lot of work and a lot of edits, but it's like it felt like this story kind of grabbed me and made me tell it. <laughs> and, I've, yeah, I've had, a, I've had a lot of fun with it. Oh, we're very much looking forward to reading it. Um, so we've just got one final question for you, which is um, for our readers our listeners, sorry, who are um, writers who are coming new to writing or um, are just early on in their career, what advice would you give them? What advice do you wish you'd been given at the early stage of your writing career? Hmm. Well, when I'm asked this question, I actually always give the same answer, partly because <laughs> it's what I did and it worked well for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, so what I would suggest that people do if they're looking to write seriously and by but my specifically what I mean by that in that context is to write for publication yeah is try to become an expert in the field and I say not the expert you don't have to be the expert but an expert in the field and what I mean by that is know about books know about writing and know about publishing so Knowing about books means reading, reading contemporary fiction so you understand what's being published today and what you enjoy and what sort of books you might therefore want to write and potentially what books, you know, you want to read but aren't that the story hasn't been told because that could be the story that you could tell and that could be a place for your book in the market. So if you want to write and be published but you're not reading books that are currently being published, you're probably not going to know what's going to work as a book to get mm. published now. And that goes back to what we were saying before about, you know, you don't want to write something that's already been done and people are going to say, this doesn't feel very original. Mm. Um, so that kind of thing. So get in bed three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon and read a book. <laughs> first of all, so become really familiar with books if you're not already. And a lot of, of course, a lot of people who want to write are so, um, but yeah, just indulge your readings. That's one thing. Second, learn 
things about the craft of writing. So, of course, writing is creative, and that means there's lots of room for imagination and experimentation and just being fun and playful and doing things your way. But still, like any creative pursuit like music or art or, or whatever, there are still technical aspects to it which will help make sure that you get your story across to the reader in the most effective way and the impact that you want to have on a reader and, and how they um, experience your words on the page works the best it can. So that includes things like understanding that point of view or understanding um, story structure, things like that. So, you know, read a book about the craft of writing, go on courses, read articles online. There's, there's loads of stuff that you can do to free, for free to teach yourself. There's lots of great podcasts out there about the craft of writing. Mm. So learn your craft. Don't think that you don't need to understand that, but you, you really do. You'll quite quickly come a cropper. Um, and then I suppose the third bit is, is learn about the publishing industry. The same way as if you were applying for a job in any industry, you'd be expected to know about the industry. Now, not know everything, because <laughs> who, who does, right? Even I still don't get a lot of the things about the publishing industry. Mm. But there's lots of information out there about, for example, how to put a submission package together yeah. to send to an agent. And, you know, you really should be taking time to do that research and become as familiar as you can with, um, you know, how the process of submitting, how publish, you know, what what is, Learn the basics. Just read read some articles and, and learn what's up on that. Mm. And just learning that stuff, learning about books, learning about writing, and learning about the industry will mean that your chances of successfully writing a book that secures a publishing deal will be way, way higher than the person who just hasn't bothered. Mm. That's really, really helpful. Re like, extremely practical tips there. Thank you. No problem. Like I say, there was lots of lots of really useful information that I guzzled down and it really helped me. So, yes, pay it forward. <laughs> Lovely. So um, that's uh, all we've got time for now. We've come we've um, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, I think, in that 30 minutes. So that's that's brilliant. If uh, people want to hear kind of more from you, are you active on social media and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So so probably the two two easiest places to find stuff out about me is one I have my Amazon author page which obviously has all my books and stuff there and a bit more about me and some of my other writing projects too and then in terms of social media I'm on Twitter um, or whatever we call it and <laughs> hopefully it'll still be there by the time this podcast comes out but I'm, I'm there as um, Philippa underscore East and I'm also on Facebook and Instagram if those are more your cup of tea you can you can easily find me on there as Philippa East as well brilliant thank Wonderful. you so much thank you so much oh, it's been a pleasure, pleasure talking to you oh it's been lovely guys thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it we hope you found some inspiration in that chat for more writing resources, go to our website, writingaroundthekids.co.uk, where you'll find tips, prompts and links to our social media. And don't forget, you can catch up with all the brilliant episodes from Series 1 and 2.